Hello and welcome everyone to another recording presented by Ayers LA. My name is Nancy Porter and it's my pleasure to share Time Magazine with you. Today I'll be sharing articles from the October 9th, 2023 issue. I need to remind you that you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. We'll start with an article on page 18 of the October 9th issue from the health section of the brief. Headline, Five Things to Do If Your Doctor Isn't Listening to You. Thirty years later, Liz Helms still remembers the way her doctor looked at her when she described the severe pain she was experiencing around her jaw, the limited facial movement and frequent muscle spasms, and feeling like she was being struck by lightning again and again. I could see it in his face. He either wasn't listening or he didn't believe me, she says. Helms, who has a temporal mandibular joint disorder, spent a year and a half fighting for the right treatment. The struggle inspired a career in patient advocacy. She now runs the California Chronic Care Coalition and has launched an online resource titled My Patient Rights that helps people dissatisfied with their health care. I decided to do something because I knew I wasn't the only person having these issues, she says. Communication difficulties between patients and physicians aren't new. But some experts report hearing more frequently that patients feel as if their doctors are dismissing their concerns. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard about this, I'd sure be wealthy, said James Jackson, Director of Behavioral Health at the ICU Recovery Center at Vanderbilt in Nashville. He works with people with chronic diseases who often feel overlooked and ignored. It boils down to some version of, you look fine, you sound fine, take some medication and come back in a month. That kind of dismissal isn't just frustrating. It can lead to missed diagnoses and delayed care. If you suspect your doctor is not listening, experts suggest employing these five strategies. One, spend time preparing for appointments. Rehearse the way you'll describe your symptoms to your doctor, ideally in the form of a one-minute elevator pitch, suggests Dr. Anne Maria Hester, a board-certified internist and author of Patient Empowerment 101. Aim to incorporate context, what was going on when you first noticed the problem, overall duration, how long each symptom lasts, and modifying factors that make the problem either better or worse. Be ready to rate the pain you're experiencing on a scale of 1 to 10, Hester says, and make it a point to utilize adjectives like sharp or dull. The more concise and specific you are, the better the chances that what you're saying will register with your doctor. 2. Ask specific questions. If you and your doctor aren't communicating well, Hester recommends seizing control of the conversation and your health by asking smart questions that require a response. For example, what might have caused the problem you're dealing with? 
What's the specific name of your diagnosis? Will it heal completely or require ongoing management? What future symptoms should you watch for? When and how will you receive your test results? If you don't understand something, she adds, don't hesitate to ask. Can you explain that in simpler terms? Or can you give me more details about that? Number three, take someone with you. When Courtney Quinn had breast cancer, she always took her wife along to the doctor. The two treated each appointment like a business meeting and prepared in advance by discussing goals, questions, and frustrations. There were many times when I felt like the doctor wasn't understanding what I want or needed, and my wife could tell I got frustrated, says Quinn, executive director of the nonprofit Aware Breast Cancer Foundation. She was able to say to the doctor, Courtney and I have talked about this, and it's one of her major concerns. She became the advocate in the room. Number four, be relentless. If your doctor isn't addressing your questions, either repeat them or rephrase them. If you still don't get anywhere, Hester suggests following up with one of these statements. It doesn't seem like we're seeing eye to eye and it's really important to me that you understand my concerns. Or, I'm worried about my condition and I need to know more. Or, I understand you have other patients to see, but I'm not comfortable with my level of understanding about my condition. How do you suggest we address this without having to wait weeks for another appointment? And lastly, number five, give feedback and consider moving on. If you're not making any progress with your doctor after two or three visits, it's probably time to start looking for a new provider. It can also be helpful to speak up about what you've experienced. Doing so could inspire change. Hester still recalls a time 25 years ago when one of her patients complained that she wasn't paying enough attention. I remember what she looks like decades later, she says, and from that time on, I made an effort to do better. All right, moving on now to page 22 of the same October 9th, 2023 issue of Time. This is also from the brief news section from the world of science. Headline, How NASA Got a UFO Czar and Why It Matters. This is written by Jeffrey Kluger. The real SARS may be long gone, but for decades the White House has been keeping the honorific alive, appointing a director to oversee a task or issue and bestowing the title along with it. We've had the Ebola Czar, the Drug Czar, the Budget Czar, the Climate Czar, and more. On September 14th, at a press conference at NASA's Washington, D.C. headquarters, the space agency gave the old role a new look, appointing the world's first-ever UFO czar. Only NASA didn't use either one of those terms. For starters, fewer and fewer people talk about UFOs or unidentified flying objects anymore. The preferred term is now the more scientific-sounding UAP for Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon. 
and NASA did not use the label czar either. Another too loose word for work that the space agency wants to keep solemn and serious. Instead, the full name for the new job is Director of UAP Research, and the man tapped to do the work is Mark McGinnery, a former Pentagon liaison for NASA. It will be McGinnery's job to study the sightings, advance science if vehicles are confirmed to be extraterrestrial, and protect national security if they are of foreign military origin. He'll have a lot to work with. Over the past 20 years, there have been more than 120 sightings of objects that appear often to be flying, with no identified means of propulsion, and maneuvering in head-snapping ways that no conventional machines can manage. It helps that the sightings have been called in by witnesses people think of as unimpeachably reliable, U.S. military pilots. The official interest in UAPs goes back a long way. In 2007, Congress established the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program Task Force to look into the phenomena. The group reached few conclusions, however, and was disbanded in 2012. But the sightings kept coming. And in June 2020, then-President Donald Trump called on the Director of National Intelligence and the Secretary of Defense to have their staffs collaborate on a study of their own. Their report landed just under a year later, and again, the findings were unsatisfying, at least for people looking for intelligent life off the planet. There was no evidence that the objects were extraterrestrial in origin, but no proof that they weren't either. The idea that they were friendlies, classified U.S. military vehicles out for a beta test spin, was ruled out. It was also possible that the vehicles were Russian or Chinese, as both countries are known to be experimenting with hypersonic technology. But that was little more than a guess. A congressional hearing in July generated headlines, but no resolution. The unidentified objects thus remained just that, unidentified. So it fell to NASA. In October of 2022, the space agency independently announced it was establishing its own UAP study team, charging the group not with figuring out what the flying objects are, but rather with drafting rules for researching and reporting the sightings going forward. Three months later, the names of the panel 16 members were announced, include, including retired astronaut Scott Kelly, Anna Maria Barea, a research affiliate with the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence and Institute in Mountain View, California, and David Grinspoon, a senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute in Tucson, Arizona. Shortly before the September 14th press conference, the team released its 33-page report. Among other things, the report called on NASA to work together with other branches of government to help determine what both previously seen and future UAPs are. 
The panelists also recommended leaning on artificial intelligence, machine learning, and satellite observations to better look for and explain the objects. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson, for one, is open to the possibility that explanation including extraterrestrials. There's a global fascination with UAP, he said at the press conference. NASA has a statutory authority to look for life in the universe. Do I believe there's life in a universe that is so vast that it's hard for me to comprehend how big it is? My personal answer is yes. All right, moving on now to an article from page 24 from the Time, October 9th issue. Headline, How Russia is Recruiting Cubans to Fight in the Ukraine. And this is by Vera Bergensgrun. Alex Vega Diaz was surprised to find himself sleeping next to Russian soldiers in a trench in Ukraine, more than 6,000 miles from home. In his telling, the 19-year-old Cuban accepted an offer posted on WhatsApp to make good money doing construction work for the Russian military. Instead, he and a friend were outfitted with weapons and sent against their will to the front lines of a war they never intended to join. Please, please help us get out of here, Vegas Diaz said in an August 31st video. The plea for help went viral. Similar stories began to surface as Cubans sought information about family members who had also flown to Moscow to join the Russian military. The outcry prompted the Cuban government to issue a striking allegation a human trafficking network operating out of Russia was luring young Cubans to enlist to fight in Ukraine. On September 8th, Cuban officials said they had arrested 17 people in connection with the alleged trafficking scheme. But social media posts, audio messages, and videos from recruits in Russia reviewed by Time magazine along with interviews with family members and documents obtained by a Ukrainian hacker group, combined to tell a very different story. They indicate that Vegas Diaz became caught up in an organized operation that has openly recruited hundreds of Cuban volunteers to fight in Moscow's depleted army. Posts advertising a contract with the Ministry of Defense for military service in the Russian army began to appear on Cuban Facebook pages in June. Results were offered a monthly salary of 204,000 rubles or 2,086 US dollars, an almost unimaginable sum in Cuba, where the average salary is less than $50 per month. On September 5th, a Ukrainian hacker group posted what appeared to be a version of the six-page contract that recruits signed once they arrived in Russia, translated into flawless Spanish. It required a one-year commitment and came with benefits that included a one-time enlistment fee of 195,000 rubles, roughly $2,000, and 2 million rubles, roughly $21,000, for their families if they are killed. The terms of the contract match those publicly promoted by the Russian Defense Ministry, 
including the possibility of Russian citizenship for the recruit and their family. It is unclear how many conscripts the recruiting push yielded. Cuban human rights groups estimated ranging from around 750 recruits to more than 1,000. Time reviewed 199 passports of Cubans ages 18 to 69 who appear to have enlisted with the Russian army since mid-July and matched more than 20 to social media profiles that corroborated their names, faces, and hometowns. Perhaps the clearest indication that the vast majority of these recruits went to Russia willingly comes through their own social media posts. Recruits posted photos with Russian tanks, smiled with other Cubans in their new Russian military uniforms, and boasted about sending money back home. The trafficking, the trafficking allegations may be an attempt by the Cuban government, a Russian ally, to maintain its stated neutrality on the war, four Cuban experts and former U.S. officials tell time. Cuba relies on Russia for food, oil, and investment. At the same time, Cuba cannot afford to jeopardize its relations with Western nations seeking to isolate Russia. The European Union is Cuba's second biggest trading partner and largest foreign investor. Cuba's foreign ministry said the nation is not part of the war conflict in Ukraine and rejects allegations that it was an accomplice in the recruiting effort. Yet dozens of passports reviewed by time had been issued recently, making it unlikely, experts say, that the communist government, which keeps close tabs on its citizens, would not have detected the sudden exodus. Several recruits told family members who spoke to time that Cuban officials intentionally did not stamp their passports before they exited the country to board their flight to Moscow in an apparent attempt to maintain deniability. The idea that the government was not involved is ludicrous, says Chris Simmons, a former counterintelligence officer with the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency. Nothing happens without their involvement. All right, we move on now to a more extensive articles in the... October 9th issue, beginning on page 9. It's from the world of business, and the headline is The Control Key. Inside Elon Musk's fight and fears for the future of artificial intelligence. This is by Walter Isaacson, who is a former editor of Time and a professor of history at Tulane and the author of numerous acclaimed biographies. This was copyrighted in 2023 and adapted from the book Elon Musk by Walter Isaacson, published by Simon & Schuster, Inc., and printed by permission. At a conference in 2012, Elon Musk met Demis Hassabis, the video game designer and artificial intelligence researcher who had co-founded a company named DeepMind that sought to design computers that could learn how to think like humans. Elon and I hit it off right away, 
and I went to visit him at his rocket factory, Hassaba says. While sitting in the canteen overlooking the assembly lines, Musk explained that his reason for building rockets that could go to Mars was that it might be a way to preserve human consciousness in the event of a world war, asteroid strike, or civilization collapse. Hassabas told him to add another potential threat to the list, artificial intelligence. Machines could become super intelligent and surpass us mortals, perhaps even decide to dispose of us. Musk paused silently for almost a minute as he processed this possibility. He decided that Hassabas might be right about the danger of AI and promptly invested $5 million in DeepMind as a way to monitor what it was doing. A few weeks after this conversation with Hassabas, Musk described DeepMind to Google's Larry Page. They had known each other for more than a decade and Musk often stayed at Page's Palo Alto, California house. The potential dangers of artificial intelligence became a topic that Musk would raise, almost obsessively, during their late-night conversations. Page was dismissive. At Musk's 2013 birthday party in Napa Valley, California, they got into a passionate debate. Unless we built in safeguards, Musk argued, artificial intelligence systems might replace humans, making our species irrelevant or even extinct. Page pushed back. Why would it matter, he asked, if machines someday surpassed humans in intelligence, even consciousness? It would simply be the next stage of evolution. Human consciousness, Musk retorted, was a precious flicker of light in the universe, and we should not let it be extinguished. Page considered that sentimental nonsense. If consciousness could be replicated in a machine, why wouldn't that be just as valuable? He accused Musk of being a specist, someone who was biased in favor of their own species. Well, yes, I am pro-human, Musk responded. I fucking like humanity, dude. Musk was therefore dismayed when he heard at the end of 2013 that Page and Google were planning to buy DeepMind. Musk and his friend, Luke Nosek, tried to put together financing to stop the deal. At a party in Los Angeles, they went to an upstairs closet for an hour-long Skype call with Hassabas. The future of AI should not be controlled by Larry, Musk told him. The effort failed, and Google's acquisition of DeepMind was announced in January of 2014. Page initially agreed to create a safety council with Musk as a member. The first and only meeting was held at SpaceX. Page, Hassabas, and Google Chair Eric Schmidt attended, along with Reid Hoffman and a few others. Musk concluded that the council was basically bullshit. So Musk began hosting his own series of dinner discussions on ways to counter Google and promote AI safety.
He even reached out to President Obama, who agreed to a one-on-one meeting in May of 2015. Musk explained the risk and suggested that it be regulated. Obama got it, Musk says, but I realized that it was not going to rise to the level of something that he would do anything about. Musk then turned to Sam Altman, a tightly bundled software entrepreneur, sports car enthusiast, and survivalist who, behind his polished veneer, had a Musk-like intensity. At a small dinner in Palo Alto, they decided to co-found a nonprofit artificial intelligence research lab, which they named OpenAI. It would make its software open source and try to counter Google's growing dominance of the field. We wanted to have something like a Linux version of AI that was not controlled by any one person or corporation, Musk says. One question they discussed at dinner was what would be safer? A small number of AI systems that were controlled by big corporations or a large number of independent systems? They concluded that a large number of competing systems providing checks and balances on one another was better. For Musk, this was the reason to make OpenAI truly open so that lots of people could build systems based on its source code. Another way to assure AI safety, Musk felt, was to tie the bots closely to humans. They should be an extension of the will of individuals, rather than systems that could go rogue and develop their own goals and intentions. That would become one of the rationales for Neuralink, the company he would found to create chips that could connect human brains directly to computers. Musk's determination to develop artificial intelligence capabilities at his own companies caused a break with OpenAI in 2018. He tried to convince Altman that OpenAI should be folded into Tesla. The OpenAI team rejected that idea and Altman stepped in as president of the lab, starting a for-profit arm that was able to raise equity funding, including a major investment from Microsoft. So, Musk decided to forge ahead with building rival AI teams to work on an array of related projects. These included Neuralink, which aims to plant microchips in human brains. Optimist, a human-like robot, and Dojo, a supercomputer that can use millions of videos to train an artificial neural network to simulate a human brain. It also spurred him to become obsessed with pushing to make Tesla cars self-driving. At first, these endeavors were rather independent, but eventually Musk would tie them all together along with a new company he founded called XAI to pursue the goal of artificial general intelligence. In March of 2023, OpenAI released GPT-4 to the public. Google then released a rival chatbot named BARD. 
The stage was thus set for a competition between OpenAI Microsoft and DeepMind Google to create products that could chat with humans in a natural way and perform an endless array of text-based intellectual tasks. Musk worried that these chatbots and AI systems, especially in the hands of Microsoft and Google, could become politically indoctrinated, perhaps even infected by what he called the woke mind virus. He also feared that self-learning AI systems might turn hostile to the human species. And on one more immediate level, he worried that Chatbox could be trained to flood Twitter with this information, biased reporting and financial scams. All of those things were already being done by humans, of course, but the ability to deploy thousands of weaponized Chatbox would make the problem two or three orders of magnitude worse. His compulsion to ride to the rescue kicked in. He was resentful that he had founded and funded OpenAI, but was now left out of the fray. AI was the biggest storm brewing, and there was no one more attracted to a storm than Musk. In February 2023, he invited, perhaps a better word is summoned, Sam Altman to meet with him at Twitter and asked him to bring the founding documents for OpenAI. Musk challenged him to justify how he could legally transform a nonprofit funded by donations into a for-profit that could make millions. Altman tried to show that it was all legitimate, and he insisted that he personally was not a shareholder or cashing in. He also offered Musk shares in the new company, which Musk declined. Instead, Musk unleashed a barrage of attacks on OpenAI. Altman was pained. Unlike Musk, he is sensitive and non-confrontational. He felt that Musk had not drilled down enough into the complexity of the issue of AI safety. However, he did feel that Musk's criticisms came from a sincere concern. He's a jerk. Altman told Kara Swisher. He has a style that is not a style that I would want to have for myself, but I think he does really care. And he is feeling very stressed about what the future is going to look like for humanity. The fuel for AI is data. The new chat box were being trained on massive amounts of information such as billions of pages on the internet and other documents. Google and Microsoft, with their search engines and cloud services and access to emails, had huge gushers of data to help train these systems. What could Musk bring to the party? One asset was the Twitter feed, which included more than a trillion tweets posted over the years, 500 million added each day. It was humanity's hive mind, 
the world's most timely database of real-life human conversations, news, interests, trends, arguments, and lingo. Plus, it was a great training ground for a chat box to test how real humans react to its responses. The value of this data feed was not something Musk considered when buying Twitter, which he has since renamed X. It was a side of benefit, actually, that I realized only after the purchase, he says. Twitter had rather loosely permitted other companies to make use of this data stream. In January 2023, Musk convened a series of late-night meetings in his Twitter conference room to work out ways to charge for it. It's a monetization opportunity, he told the engineers. It was also a way to restrict Google and Microsoft from using this data to improve their AI chat box. He ignited a controversy in July when he decided to temporarily restrict the number of tweets a viewer could view each day. The goal was to prevent Google and Microsoft from scraping up millions of tweets to use as data to train their AI systems. There was another data trove that Musk had, the 160 billion frames per day of video that Tesla received and processed from the cameras on its cars. This data was different from the text-based documents that informed Chatbox. It was video data of humans navigating in real-world situations. It could help create AI for physical robots, not just text-generating chatbots. The holy grail of artificial general intelligence is building machines that can operate like humans in physical spaces, such as factories and offices and on the surface of Mars, not just wow us with it disembodied chatting. Tesla and Twitter together could provide the data sets and the processing capability for both approaches, teaching machines to navigate in physical space and to answer questions in natural language. This past March, Musk texted me, there are a few important things I would like to talk to you about can only be done in person. When I got to Austin, Texas, he was at the house of Shivan Zillis, the Neuralink executive who is the mother of two of his children and who had been his intellectual companion on artificial intelligence since the founding of OpenAI eight years earlier. He said we should leave our phones in the house while we sat outside because, he said, someone could use them to monitor our conversation but he later agreed that I could use what he said about AI in my book. He and Zilla sat cross-legged and barefoot on the poolside patio with their twins, Strider and Azur, now 16 months old, on their laps. Zillis made coffee and then put his in the microwave to get it super hot so he wouldn't chug it down too fast. What can be done to make AI safe? Musk asked. I keep wrestling with that. 
What actions can we take to minimize AI danger and assure that human consciousness survives? He spoke in a low monotone, punctuated by bouts of almost manic laughter. The amount of human intelligence, he noted, was leveling off because people were not having enough children. Meanwhile, the amount of computer intelligence was going up exponentially, like Moore's Law on steroids. At some point, biological brain power would be dwarfed by digital brain power. In addition, new AI machine learning systems could ingest information on their own and teach themselves how to generate outputs, even upgrade their own code and capabilities. The term singularity was used by the mathematician John von Neumann and the sci-fi writer Werner Vinge to describe the moment when artificial intelligence could forge ahead on its own at an uncontrollable pace and leave us mere more humans behind. That could happen sooner than we expected, Musk said in an ominous tone. For a moment, I was struck by the oddness of the scene. We were sitting on a suburban patio by a tranquil backyard swimming pool on a sunny spring day with two bright-eyed twins learning to toddle as Musk somberly speculated about the window of opportunity for building a sustainable human colony on Mars before an AI apocalypse destroyed earthly civilization. Musk lapsed into one of his long silences. He was, as Zillis called it, batch processing, referring to the way an old-fashioned computer would queue up a number of tasks and run them sequentially when it had enough processing power available. I can't just sit around and do nothing, he finally said softly. With AI coming, I'm sort of wondering whether it's worth spending that much time thinking about Twitter. Sure, I could probably make it the biggest financial institution in the world, but I have only so many brain cycles and hours in the day. I mean, it's not like I need to be richer or something. I started to speak, but he knew what I was going to ask. So, what should my time be spent on, he said. Getting Starship launched. Getting to Mars is far more pressing now. He paused again and then added, Also, I need to focus on making AI safe. That's why I'm starting an AI company. This is the company Musk dubbed XAI. He personally recruited Igor Babushkin, formerly of DeepMind, but he told me he would run it himself. I calculated that would mean he would be running six companies, Tesla, SpaceX and its Starlink unit, Twitter, The Boring Company, Neuralink, and XAI. That was three times as many as Steve Jobs, Apple and Pixar, at his peak. 
He admitted that he was starting off way behind OpenAI and creating a chat box that could give natural language responses to questions. But Tesla's work on self-driving cars and Optimus, the robot, put it way ahead in creating the type of AI needed to navigate in the physical world. This meant that his engineers were actually ahead of OpenAI in creating full-fledged artificial general intelligence, which requires both abilities. Tesla's real-world AI is underrated, he said. Imagine if Tesla and OpenAI had to swap tasks. They would have to make self-driving, and we would have to make large language model chatbox. Who wins? We do. In April, Musk assigned Babushkin and his team three major goals. The first was make an AI bot that could write computer code. A programmer could begin typing in any coding language, and the XAI bot would auto-complete the task for the most likely action they were trying to take. The second product would be a chat box competitor to OpenAI's GPT series, one that used algorithms and trained on data sets that would ensure its political neutrality. The third goal that Musk gave the uh, team was even grander. His overriding mission had always been to assure that AI developed in a way that helped guarantee that human consciousness endured. That was best achieved, he thought, by creating a form of artificial general intelligence that could reason and think and pursue truth as its guiding principle. You should be able to give it big tasks like build a better rocket engine. Someday, Musk hoped, it would be able to take on even grander and more existential questions. It would be a maximum truth-seeking AI. It would care about understanding the universe, and that would probably lead it to want to preserve humanity, because we are, are an interesting part of the universe. That sounded vaguely familiar, and then I realized why. He was embarking on a mission similar to the one chronicled in the formative, perhaps too formative, Bible of his childhood years, the one that pulled him out of his adolescent existential depression, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which featured a supercomputer designed to figure out the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And that will conclude my coverage of the time, October 9th, 2023, issue. I need to remind you again that you have been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original author and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share Time Magazine with you.